0: On Thursday of this past week, Linda and I had the privilege of joining a table of Corinth people at a uh, fundraising banquet for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And the key speaker of the evening was Dabo Swinney, the uh, coach of the national champion Clemson Tigers. So I've become a little bit of a Clemson fan recently, maybe in part because one Sunday a couple years ago after Clemson won the national championship the first time, I made the comment in a sermon that I don't even have like a Clemson-colored tie to wear, and I showed you this one other Sunday, but like uh, Todd Bird, whose stepdaughter was going there at the time, got me a tie that is signed personally by the coach of this team. It says, Pastor Bob All-In Dabo Swinney. So, like, when we found out Dabo's coming to town, like, we got to go here, Dabo. And uh, it was well worth the trip. Dabo had a rough start in life, alcoholic father, divorced parents, even homeless for a while as a teenager, but he calls himself a poster child for FCA because he met the Lord through that ministry, and everything changed from that day on. And as you might expect from a coach of his caliber and notoriety, his message included some great one-liners. God will take the mess and make a message. With Jesus, we're all first team. We're all five stars. The key to coaching is love. God never says, oops, He went on to talk, of course, at that point about his own story, but like there's never a mistake there. God never says, oops, didn't mean to do that. Greatness isn't your destiny, it's your decision. What Devil said at points sounded to me a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. So he is one who is known for the integrity and consistency of his walk. His pastor introduced him. His pastor was a whole lot more handsome and younger and hip than your pastor is, at least the one in this service. But he said, like, if you ever wonder whether this man, you know, walks what he says, I can tell you that he does. And Dabo showed us, gave us an illustration that he uses with his football players to, at the very beginning of training, he says, I'll take the the biggest, strongest, toughest lineman, and I'll put him right up in front of the, uh, the whole team. And he says, then I'll give him a football. So I brought one in case you don't know what one looks like, okay? So he says, I'll give him a football, and I'll say, I want you to stand on this football. And he said, the next minute or so is kind of comical while this big, tough, bruising lineman can't keep his balance. He's very awkward. He's flopping all over the place. I was gonna demonstrate for you, but I value my head. So... Uh, And then he says, at the end of that demonstration, I say to the team, this is what your life is going to look like if football is your foundation. In other words, I'm not here to teach you football. I'm here to teach you life. Uh, Dabo is also a very strong believer, as I said, and so I don't know how that works into his training regimen. I don't know that part, but I can tell you that by his life and what he says in a very public way, He points people to Jesus as the only foundation in life that will truly make a difference. So Dabo says there are also some uh, strong similarities between football and life. Uh, There are basic principles that you need, like be prepared, and put your armor on, and play the next play. That's what you're supposed to do. Of the 12,000 men who play Division I college football each year, Every one of them is playing for an impossible dream. This is now Pastor Bob, not Dabo. I'll tell you when it's Dabo. This is Bob. Every one of them would like to be a star player on the national championship team, but only one of the 130 teams is going to win, and only a handful of those members will be recognized in the media for making the most significant contributions. Everyone else who dreams of being the star player on the national championship team, every one of those other 12,000 players is dreaming an impossible dream. And yet every one of them needs to go to every practice as if I'm playing, I'm getting ready to play for the national championship. So there's something about that basic formula of be prepared no matter what happens and put your armor on and play the next play that every single player needs to be putting into practice. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also seems to give us an impossible set of ideals. And if you, just to get to the bottom line, uh, he says, be perfect as if, uh, be perfect as God your Father is perfect, all right? So that's impossible. Nobody can do that. And he gives you some examples of how you're supposed to do that. As we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, let's just remind ourselves ourselves what some of these impossible things are. Like, nobody can do this all the time, and yet Jesus lays them out there as the ideal. Rejoice when you're insulted. How you doing with that? He doesn't just say, take it. He says, actually, be happy when you are insulted. Don't be angry. How you doing with that one? How about turn the other cheek or love your enemies? Do your giving and praying and fasting completely in secret. Like, don't let other people see that. Forgive anyone who sins against you. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Just trust God. Don't serve money. Don't ever worry about tomorrow, not about anything. Don't worry about it. Stop judging others. And by the time Jesus is done, if not at every phase in the sermon, you're going like, that's impossible. That's like telling me to play for a national championship, to win the national championship. And what Jesus does at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is he boils that down And okay, 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 I, I get it. You think this is impossible? Let me just tell you the next thing. And there are things that sound a lot like be prepared and put your armor on and just play the next play. Like do the next thing that I'm calling you to do. So last Sunday, as we moved toward this point, I said that there are a number of ways in which Jesus wants you to keep it simple. So number one, keep praying. Number two, keep doing. And number three, keep choosing the narrow gate. So I want to pick up there. We actually overlapped with that narrow gate passage today because the rest of this, the rest of this chapter, the rest of the sermon sort of takes that keep choosing the narrow way, and then it finishes that theme and applies it with this. These, these basic decisions that we all need to make. So I'm going to take that keep choosing theme, start again with verse 13. And I need to warn you in advance that many people see this part that Pastor Lori read and that I'm getting ready to talk about as the hard sayings of Jesus or among the hard sayings of Jesus. And I need you to know in advance that it's not my intention to take Jesus and make him easy. I would not be a faithful preacher of the word of God if I took passages that Jesus says, or that Jesus knows are supposed to sort of knock you out of your comfort zone. If I took them and made them easy, I would not be faithfully preaching the word of God. So my role is, uh, you you probably have noticed if you come to traditional service especially very often, I don't do a lot of comparing of other scriptures. Not that I think other scriptures aren't important, but I think sometimes by finding parallel or contrasting scriptures, we actually water down what's in front of us. And I'm going to tell you, I think God has a word for us in the text that is right in front of us. And I just want to understand what exactly it is that Jesus is saying. But keep your attention right there. might be a good time for you to open your Bible back up and follow along in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. And particularly, oh, this is my Clemson mug. Did y'all notice that too? Like I got this on Thursday night. So particularly what has intrigued me is that Jesus gives you information and he also gives you instruction. So he offers you perspectives, which is like the reasons why But only a couple times in this passage does he actually say, this is what I want you to do about it, right? So think about that and focus your attention on what Jesus says to do. What are the commands in this passage? And we begin with verse 13. I titled this section 13 and 14, Keep Choosing Focus, Keep Choosing Focus, so in my view, it's too easy to get lost in the wrong questions in these verses. Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, and our minds are drawn to the math. Does that mean that more people are going to hell than to heaven? When he adds, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it, who's in that small minority? Is our response supposed to be that we figure out who, whatever the least people want to do, and we do that? Are you always supposed to be in the minority? Is that Jesus' point? So what happens if the minority becomes the majority? So, or what happens if you're trying to so arrange government so that your political party uh, that's doing all the things that you believe is right is suddenly in the majority? Are then you now wrong because you're now in the majority instead of the minority? It's kind of silly, right? So we focus on these questions of, you know, how, what difference does it make whether you're in the majority or minority? And they're all the wrong questions to ask. However, it is the right observation to make that Jesus says not everybody makes it. So when he talks about life and destruction, I believe he's talking about eternity, and Jesus is not one who says everybody's eventually going to be in. I didn't say that. Jesus did. And it will often seem to you, and Jesus seems to say that it's true that there are a whole lot more people who are headed to destruction, but what does he say to do about it? That's my point. I want you to observe what Jesus actually says to do about this uh, narrow way and the broad way, and it's right at the beginning of verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. So it's not your job to figure out who's in and who's out, right? There will be some in and there will be some out. Jesus says, I'm talking to you. You make sure that you enter the narrow gate. Keep choosing focus is the first point here. So if you spend too much time trying to figure out who's on the road to destruction, you may actually miss the point that you are to choose the narrow way and that you are to choose the way that is often unpopular, that seems unpopular to you. And you're saying, well, what about all those other people? Aren't they like, and Jesus tells, says the same thing and here's, I'm gonna break my rule just slightly and point to another passage where Jesus says in John 21 to Peter, Peter's going like, okay, you're telling me that I am going to... Um, Suffer uh, unavoidably, and not by choice at the end of my life, and Peter looks at John he says, "Well, what about him?" And Jesus says, "Why does that matter to you?" So I would say, Jesus is saying the same thing here in Matthew 7:13. Why does it matter to you what they're doing? You make sure you choose the narrow gate. Keep choosing focus. There's a narrow gate, there's a narrow way. You stay on it. All right? That's number one, keep choosing focus. Second thing, Jesus says, is keep choosing discernment. So many Bible readers find the next section, and I'm going to join what is, at least in the NIV, two sections into one, and I'll show you why here in a moment. But verses 15 to 23, many people find this section troubling for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 7, don't judge, but now he includes this whole passage on watching out for false prophets, because on the outside they seem innocent, they have sheeps clothing, but in, in, inwardly they are ferocious wolves, they want to destroy you. And then he goes on to say, not once but twice, by their fruit you will recognize them, and as he develops that analogy, he notes you can tell the difference between a good tree and a bad tree by fruit. As Pastor Amy said to the children, like you can see fruit, and Jesus is saying, if fruit comes, if bad fruit emerges, then it may have come from a bad tree, right? So, From there, Jesus says that not everyone who says to him, and now we're picking up on that next section, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says that many will say to him on that day, this is clearly the final judgment. My buddy Dabo said the other night, there are two most important days in life, this day and that day. Today and that day are the two most important days, and what I do this day needs to have in mind that day. So he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? You notice how Dabo's now my buddy, right? Like like this, I'm wearing his tie, y'all. Okay, so Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? And they will respond to me, I never knew you. I think this is one of the most frightening lines in all the... New Testament, I never knew you. Knew is a word that implies relationship. I never had a relationship with you. Away from me, you evildoers. Tim Keller points out that there are three similarities between the false prophets who are mentioned here as those Jesus never knew and authentic believers. Number one, they're both orthodox. They both believe that Jesus is Lord. They call him Lord. Number two, they're both passionate. Lord, Lord, the emphasis me, implies like passion in the same way that if my wife says, Bob, versus she says, Bob, Bob, I'm going like, okay, that's uh, she's serious about this, right? So there's passion involved when you say, Lord, Lord. And thirdly, Both groups serve God, like, in dramatic ways. There's prophecy, there's exorcism, there are miracles. And this is the second troubling part of this section. Are we to read this and say, as a later crowd would say to Jesus, who then can be saved? Like, if it's not enough to call Jesus Lord with passion and then serve him, who's in? Are we to read these words and doubt our own eternal destiny? Now, before I answer that question, note that there's a connection between the false prophet section, verses 15 to 20, and the Lord, Lord section, verses 21 to 23. The first one leads to the second. So those who say, Lord, Lord, and who prophesy and perform many miracles are the false prophets that he said to watch out for. They are the bad trees that bear bad fruit. So what do we do with this information? And again, I'm going to tell you like what's in the text. What does Jesus say to do? There's only one command, in verses 15 to 23. And the command is not, now make sure you look around you and find out whether people are going to heaven or hell. Like, it's your job to judge them. There's nowhere here or anywhere else in the New Testament that makes you the judge. But what he does say is, watch out for false prophets. So in your journey along the narrow way, you will have a lot of people who try to influence you spiritually. Some of them will be very convincing with their charisma and their success and their apparent spiritual power, and there's nothing inherently wrong with charisma and success and spiritual power, but you are to exercise discernment because that's not enough. It's not your place to judge their destiny. Jesus is the one who will say to them, you're in or you're out, right? Away from me, you evildoers. You are to decide based on their fruit, and what is their fruit? Their fruit is whether or not they do the things that they say, that Jesus says, right? So you're to discern the consistency and integrity and authenticity of those you allow to influence you. This is when you do judge. This is when you do discern who is influencing my spiritual life? Who am I listening to? Who am I reading? Who am I watching? who is telling me what's true and what's not true about the Christian life? Jesus says, watch out for false prophets, keep choosing discernment, always be vigilant, and make sure the people who are influencing you are people who live what they say, who are people of integrity. That's a huge burden on those of us who are pastors and teachers and leaders and coaches and whatever, like I can totally pull the rug out of somebody else's confidence and there are many notorious examples of those who have been in the public eye in almost every field who do that and they say one thing and then you realize they're not doing that. And so Jesus is saying to me, don't be that kind of false prophet, but he's also saying to all of you, the test for whether you're going to listen to someone or not, their authenticity is do they live what they say they believe in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, he does broaden this out now to everyone. So now he's talking to all of us, starting in verse 24. And as he closes the sermon, he has one more last story to tell, to weave into it. And this is a familiar parable. There's one more take home. There's a deliverable here. There's a doable. What are, you, what are you supposed to do this? You keep choosing the narrow way. You keep choosing discernment. But thirdly, you keep choosing obedience. And this is how Jesus says this. The parable is about two builders in a flood zone. Both build beautiful homes. I'm reading through the lines, between the lines a little bit here. The framing and windows and exterior and roof are all the same. They're incredibly wonderful homes, both use the same interior decorator. The result is cozy and attractive and, well, it's home and sometimes fruit is not visible right away because it looks like this fruit is good, right? On first glance, this is good fruit and then a storm comes up and the same storm hits Both houses with rain, rising flood water, and hurricane-force winds. And when the storm subsides, the differences between the two houses is stark. One lies in ruins, and the other one stands strong. And it's still beautiful, and it's still functional. And what was the difference, he says, the foundation. So one house was built on solid ground with footings set into the rock, and the other was constructed with shallow pillars on shifting sand. And it's all parable... But unlike with some of his parables, Jesus explains this. When he does it in verse 24 positively and verse 26 negatively, he says, the wise man hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, but the foolish man hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. That's it, right? It's kind of a simple application to a complex sermon that has given us impossible demands, and Jesus is like the first Nike pitch man. Just do it. Do what you know to do. But it's impossible. Like, I can't do everything that Jesus said. Just do the next right thing. Keep choosing obedience. Don't ever tell yourself, Jesus says, the next choice doesn't matter. No disciple of Jesus can ever say the next choice doesn't matter. You keep choosing obedience. The next choice is the one that defined you. So it turns out Coach Dabo was right. Maybe your last play was a touchdown, Maybe your last play was a fumble. Maybe you were on the bench for the last play. You've got to be ready to play the next play. And this is what Jesus is saying. You keep choosing obedience. Think, What is it that Jesus is asking me to do next? You don't evaluate everything you've ever done. So like, I can't be perfect. You say, okay, but in this next choice, I am to be faithful. So listen to what Jesus says and put it into practice. Do what he's calling you to do next. In the 830 bulletin, I had a from Robert Browning's poem that says, a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? In other words, it's never a bad thing to always be stretching for what you know you cannot achieve. It's never a bad thing for a football player to say, I'm playing for the national championship. Okay, we're 0-10, but it's okay. I'm playing like I'm playing for the national. I'm practicing like I'm playing for the national championship here. A man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? You're you're driving for heaven. Jesus will finish the work in you. You should always be stretching forward for the goal of God-like perfection. You won't make it until heaven, but never relax on the quest toward obedience. Do the next right thing, Jesus is saying. So is this passage designed to leave you fearful or encouraged? Are you supposed to be unsettled by what World War II German Reformed pastor called cheap grace, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where it doesn't matter what you do once you grasp and receive God's forgiveness through Christ, like it's okay? Should you be unsettled if you're living cheap grace? Absolutely you should. If you've come to assume that it doesn't matter how you live because God has forgiven you, then yes, you should be unsettled. But on the other hand, are you supposed to be terrified that you never find any kind of assurance because you always realize how imperfect you are and no, you are not supposed to be terrified by this passage. Let me explain. We almost ended our series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount with verse 27, which would have been a big mistake. The words of Jesus' longest recorded sermon end in verse 7, but Matthew's not done. And Matthew says in verses 28 and 29, he actually gives us the answer to the question, is there no grace on the Sermon on the Mount? Like, it's just impossible demands. Is there no grace here? Is all we have a set of impossible standards? And what Matthew says is this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So there are two key words. One is authority. Jesus taught differently than all the legal experts of his day, all the other legal experts, because they would use case law, and they would build their case on what somebody else said before them. Jesus didn't do that. He said, you've heard that it said, but I say to you. So they were amazed at his authority. But the other word, the other key word is amazed. Why are they amazed? It's because of what Jesus has just said about himself, that he's going to be the judge on that day. It's Jesus that's going to say, away from me, you evildoers. He called God my Father in heaven. People didn't do that in his time. He said people need to take these words of mine, not Hillel and all your other teachers, and put them into practice. So Jesus has already pointed to himself, and then the most important thing is that that Matthew's not done. When he says the crowds were amazed, Matthew loves this word amazed, and this is only the first time they're amazed. Later on, they're going to be amazed when he calms the storm, and the disciples will say, what kind of man is this? And there's going to be a man who never talked before, and uh, the demon is cast out of him, and the crowd is amazed and says, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And then he goes back to his hometown to speak, and the people are amazed, and they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? So the, Matthew, the way Matthew, listen to me carefully if, you've, if I've lost you, The way Matthew lays this out, the Sermon on the Mount is not ultimately about what Jesus says. It's about who he is. So when he's done saying what he says, the crowds are amazed at who he is. And this is where Matthew is setting you up for the whole rest of his gospel, and he will get to grace. And he will get to Jesus' miracles and then he'll get to Jesus' death and then he'll get to Jesus' resurrection and then he'll get to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations of this Jesus. But right now, he's just setting you up. He's going like right here from the beginning. When he taught, the crowds were amazed at his authority. And I've set you up as well. Because we started with the Apostles' Creed the first couple of Sundays of the year and then we took a break for the Sermon on the Mount and now we're going into Lent and we're coming back to the Apostles' Creed, and we're coming to the second paragraph of the Apostles' Creed, and who's it about? I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was crucified and dead and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So all of this, yes, is just a setup. It's Matthew. Stay Tuned, and it's our... Stay tuned, there's more to come. And through Jesus, you will find all the grace you need to flood over every imperfection in your life of this pursuit of holiness. But meanwhile, never, ever, ever give up choosing the next step of obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by this, and yes, Jesus is pointing us, preparing us for something far deeper and far beyond, but I just wonder if there aren't those in the sound of my voice today who are sort of wondering like, have I done enough? And I pray that they would be freed from that particular agonizing question and rest in what Jesus has done for us to completely release us from the burden, the debt of sin by his cross and by his resurrection. It is Jesus that we need. We pause, Lord, just to say, if if this is you, if you need to just trust Jesus Christ to forgive you, take a moment and do so in these moments of quiet. And then, Lord, for every one of us, we need this fresh response because there are always ways in which we have become aware, I've gotten lazy, I've gotten sloppy, I've given myself... Permission In too many ways, I've thought I'm not in the game, like nobody cares about what I do sitting over here on the bench. And you do. So point out to us the next thing that we are to do to obey Jesus and live lives of deeper and greater and pure holiness. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray.